Genesis chapter number 5. This morning's message is entitled, Hope for All Generations. Hope for All Generations. And I don't know if you've been looking ahead and um, you know, reading ahead. Hopefully, uh, if you're on the website, catching up on some of the sermons, you'll see those new passages posted there, kind of forecasting the next passage that we'll be looking into. But Genesis 5, if you have been reading ahead, probably... If I'm going to guess, probably wasn't um, on your most exciting, hey, look forward to the next chapter coming, as it's uh, simply just a a list of of names, right? It's a genealogy uh, that lays out the line of David through his son, Seth. And uh, if you're like me, right, I'm just going to be honest. If you were on Facebook at all a couple days ago, I shared just a little blurb, uh, just hopefully preparing our hearts and our minds around the message of this genealogy that the Lord has for us. But anytime you're reading through the Bible in a year or you're just reading through a certain book and you hit some type of genealogy, can we just have like a, like a real talk moment? Like, that's not like, oh man, that was just a blessing, right? That just, that's a nugget I can take away and just encourage my heart, and my relationship with the Lord this week. Genealogies typically don't do that, right? I mean, it's just something that we, if we're honest, we might just kind of skim past or maybe even skip over. It's not something that we typically spend a lot of time in and studying and examining. So I'm going to come into this message knowing that I've got kind of an inherent barrier that we've got to get across this morning just in our mentality of getting through this this text. However, I want to say a few opening comments just in regards to how I think we can get the most out of not just this genealogy listed here in Genesis 5, but really any text of Scripture that you come to that you might find a head-scratcher or maybe challenging to get through. Maybe you're reading through the Bible in a year and, and you know it's coming and, and you run into that buzzsaw of Leviticus, right? That legalese and, and you're just really searching for, man, what's my takeaway here? What is God really showing me in His Word? What has He revealed to me in this text about himself. And so um, I want to just tie this opening comment to really a philosophical, intentional philosophical approach that we have to Scripture. And you probably heard this word at nauseum, but we approach Scripture from a teaching and preaching perspective in an expository way, right? Meaning that we approach it verse by verse, right? We believe by conviction that the Word of God was given in its totality in that way. Right? You look at the New Testament and the, the apostles wrote a holistic letter to a group of people that was meant to be read in a setting. Right? It wasn't meant to be picked apart, a verse here over there out of this letter and a verse out of this letter and we kind of piece it all together and tie it together and I'll come up with some message that I think sounds good, right? That's not how Scripture was intended to be approached. So as we approach Scripture in an expository way, it kind of puts some guide rails on the flexibility that we have as teachers and preachers to maybe jump around a certain topic or jump around a certain text or um, sidestep something that may be difficult for us to understand. We can't do that. Why? Because we go verse by verse by verse. And so in our teaching and preaching, we're implicitly, hopefully, teaching you how to read the, the, the Word of God in an expository manner. Right? That when you come to a genealogy or you come to a book of Scripture that's difficult, that you approach it head on. 
And you speak some truth into your heart that your human frail mind wants you to just quickly move past it. So with that said, I want to just give you six quick tips to help you read the Bible in a more expository way. And I want to use these six little tips, helpful tips, to hopefully lay a foundation for us to appreciate this Genesis 5 genealogy the most we can, right? So the first tip of, is this. When you come to a genealogy or a tough section of Scripture and you're scratching your head saying, what am I to get out of this? Just stop and pray for understanding. That's, that's the first thing we need to do, and we're, we're going to do that before we, we look into this particular text this, this morning. But just stop and pray for understanding. That seems very obvious, but yet it's underutilized when you think about it in your, your daily reading, right? How often do you come to a verse like, man, I don't know what that means, and you just jump past it as opposed to just stop and pray, Lord, what does this mean? You remember in the book of John, we've been given what? The promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwells in our heart. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the counselor, gives us an opportunity to understand his word. And so stop and pray for that understanding. Secondly, Understand the context. This is many times where we get off track when we get to a difficult passage is this we're reading it in isolation. What comes before it, what comes afterwards can many times help in our understanding of that difficult passage. Number three, research the literary genre. The author of this book, uh, what did he have for us? What was his approach to it? Is there symbolism? Uh, what, what is... There, what's not there? What is the literary genre? How should we approach that text? Fourth, ask questions. That seems like an obvious one as well, but think about how often do you just, when you're reading the Word of God, just stop and ask some questions about it. What are some good questions to ask? What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about mankind, about myself? What does it tell me about my relationship with God? There are many other questions that you could layer into that, but just stop and ask yourself some questions when you hit a little roadblock in your reading of the Word of God. Number five, study and discuss, not in isolation, but together. Right? I hope you all have friends uh, within the context of this body, maybe outside the body, maybe within the context of this covenant membership, that as you're reading through the Word of God, if you come to something that's not clear, do the old who wants to be a millionaire, what, phone a friend, right? Shoot a text, shoot him an email, pick up the phone, meet him for coffee and discuss it. And how awesome would it be if we had huddles of covenant members and attenders at Liberty Hills Bible Church that were just getting together to discuss the Word of God, discussing our study through the book of Genesis and grappling with what does this mean and what does it mean for me? Study and discuss together. Finally, consult a good, readable, and reliable commentary. This is the last one of, of my six tips to help you in understanding difficult passages. And I use three very important qualifiers. A good, readable, and reliable commentary. There are a lot of commentaries out there. Not all of them are good. Not all of them are readable. And not all of them are reliable so if all else fails and you feel like you need something in a supplemental nature to help you understand a, a section of Scripture, get a good commentary. And if you say, hey, you know what? I've never really done that before. I, I might need some help. Come talk to one of the elders 
Uh, we use commentaries every week in, in our own study and preparation for the Word of God, and we'd be happy to point you in the right direction of a good, readable, and reliable commentary. So all that to say, we're going to do hopefully all of those things this morning as we tackle Genesis 5 in its entirety, this genealogy of Adam, hope for all generations. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are God, that you are on your throne, and that you are in complete control of all the circumstances that we might find ourselves in this morning. What hope we've already been given this morning as we've been able to worship together, to lift up our voices, unified in praising your name and magnifying your name, declaring our commitment to you and your word, affirming your love and your grace and your mercy and your perseverance towards us as your child. Father, I pray this morning that we would be mindful, not of the strength of our grip on you, but Father, we would be mindful of the grip that you have on us because we will always fail. Our grip will always slip. It will always Lesson, but Father, your grip is constant. It is sure, it is never failing, and it is certainly faithful. So Father, I pray this morning that as we come together as your gathered church, that our hearts and our minds would be attentive to what you would have for us from your word. And Father, we pray for understanding even this morning as we look to a section of, of scripture that can be difficult for us to really wrap our hearts and our minds around. And I pray that your spirit would do a work that we cannot do, that we would find hope in you, in your son, Jesus Christ, who has made a way through a promised line, a promised seed that has accomplished the work that you set out to do to make a way for sinners to be restored in their relationship with God the Father because of our Sin. And so, Father, we thank you for that work. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, hope for all generations from a literary perspective. Again, we're in this section, this genealogy, and in its most basic form, it is given to provide a history of descent, of origin, and ancestry. Ancestry is kind of a popular word these days. Right? Have you seen the commercials? Our culture and our society is a little obsessed right now in understanding their ancestry. There's something in this sense of belonging in this world that's traced out in understanding one's lineage. As a human being, we all want to belong, don't we? We all want to understand our place in this world and how we relate rightly to those around us, those from the past and certainly those in the present and in the days ahead. We want to understand our place in this world. And so, especially the United States and in the world as a whole, probably somewhat, has had some type of romantic fascination with this concept of Websites and programs such as Ancestry.com and 23andMe. You've got the Cellular Research Institute or Cryogenics. All of these give us what? This in-home kit that we can buy and we can purchase. And it comes in a 
nice flashy little box and we can send that back in and they do a full analysis of our DNA profile and they send back what? A, A report of your origins, of where you came from, your the people group, your race, and understanding all those things and how it fits together. And it's become now a full-blown industry. It's expected to grow up, up to $22 billion in revenue by the year 2024 by just telling people where they came from. Isn't that unbelievable? It doesn't stop there. They're even doing this for pets now. We're obsessed with understanding where we come from. We're intrigued with our heritage. We're fascinated by our genetic profile. But I think it's more than just a new marketing scheme. It's more than just a new industry that's been created. I believe it's built into our DNA. It's a spiritual conversation of us desiring to belong and to be in relationship with other people, namely the God of this universe. God created us to be in relationship with himself. Did we not see that in the creation account? Adam and Eve were created in the image and the likeness of God. Why? So that they could be in unbridled fellowship, intimate fellowship with the God of this universe, the creator of this universe. But as we've seen in previous chapters, mankind failed. They're experiencing the consequences of sin Because of Adam and Eve, those consequences will now ripple through all generations to come, but not without a glimmer of grace and hope on the horizon. And it's going to be found in the person and work of this promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. So this morning, the big idea of our text can be summed up in a simple statement that is absolutely seasoned with lots of grace and lots of hope. Here's the big idea this morning. Because God always keeps his promises, he will make a way for mankind's relationship with God to be restored through the person and work of Jesus. One more time, this is the big idea of our text, because God always, he always keeps his promises. He will make a way for mankind's relationship with God to be restored through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Can we say amen to that? And so a strategic little time out for us this morning. Do you believe in your heart of hearts, in the circumstances that you find yourself in personally today, that God always keeps his promises? I see lots of heads nodding yes, but let's be honest. Sometimes in the midst of those circumstances, does it always feel like God is keeping his promises? Oh, it doesn't always feel. Why? Because there's tension, there's conflict, there's difficulty, there's pain, there's hurt, there's anxiety, there's there's fear. Even in the midst of those promises, God takes us through that fire, but we always come out as his child in his perfect hand and his perfect, perfect will and as his perfect timing. He always keeps his promises. Let's stand together with me as we read Genesis chapter number five. Genesis chapter number five. This is the word of the Lord. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Verse number six, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Verse number 15. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Verse 30, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You may be seated. Because God always keeps his promises, he will make a way for mankind, mankind's relationship with God to be restored through the personal work of Jesus. We've seen thus far that Adam failed, sin entered the world, as did death. That sin and death is passed from generation to generation, but there was a promise given that despite the failure of Adam and Eve, that despite this failure as a means of grace that you can only imagine, there was a promise There was a promise, not just for Adam and Eve, but for future generations to come. Do you remember what that promise was? If you remember back with me to Genesis chapter number three, verse number five, here we have what theologians have called the proto-evangelium. It's basically a compound Greek word, protos meaning first, evangelion meaning gospel. And kids, what does the gospel mean? Do you remember? What does gospel mean? 
the good, say it loud, the good news. Good, right? So this is the first time that the good news, the gospel, a promised Messiah is present in Scripture right there in Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 15. And what was that promise? That promise was that there was a seed of the woman. And that seed of the woman would be this promised Messiah that would crush the head of Satan and that Satan through that Passion Week and through the death of Jesus on the cross, he would all but just bruise the heel of Jesus. So this was the promise that at the earliest pages of Genesis, right on the tales of the, of the failure of Adam and Eve, God provides hope. He provides a way for that relationship to be restored once again. So through understanding the context of this promise in chapter number three and throughout all the scripture for that matter, we will observe what God's faithfulness and immediately preserving a line, making a way for the seed of the woman to overcome and defeat sin and to eternally undo the effects of that sin, which was what? It was death. Because Jesus lives because he defeated sin in that tomb and arose from the, from the dead, we can have hope for all eternity to live with him in newness of life. With that said, this morning, we're going to tie that promise of chapter number three to our genealogy of chapter number five and simply make two observations in this text this morning. First, we're going to see the pattern within the genealogy, some important observations to make concerning the pattern within this genealogy. And then secondly, we're going to look at the exceptions within the genealogy. And then finally, we're just going to make some, some simple summary statements to focus our attention on the hope within this genealogy. So first, let's look at the pattern. We have in these beginning couple verses of chapter number five, some very familiar language, don't we? We saw that back in chapter number one, verses 27 and 28. So God created man, how? In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. How? With what gender? Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, this was their commission, go and be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So these first two verses are pretty cut and dry. We've, we've nailed that in chapter number one, so don't worry. I'm not going to rehash it too much, but I want to make the connection that here in chapter five, we see the familiar language of chapter number one. So as we move our way into more of this formal section of the genealogy, we, is, we observe a perpetuating pattern that I believe is noteworthy for us to describe this morning. So after Adam, we see here in our genealogy nine sons that are listed. And in each case, except for actually four of them, Adam, Enoch, Lamech, and Noah, which we'll discuss those more in the exceptions of our second point, we observe this same pattern that is followed as each son is described. So what is the pattern that we see? Okay, hang with me. I'm just going to make the observations of the pattern. Are you with me? Here we go, ready? So the first pattern that we see is we see the age of the individual father 
when his firstborn son is born. And uh, man, I don't know about you, but looking at some of these ages, when their firstborn son is born, wow, must have been some very energetic men there with longevity and health. And there's some, there's some old guys giving birth to their, for, their firstborn son. So that's the first observation. The second one is that the remaining, of their year, the remaining years of their life are now mentioned after the birth of the son. The third observation of the patterns, there's acknowledgement that there were other sons and daughters were born. So certainly there were more sons after this firstborn son. There potentially were daughters born before this firstborn son. The next observation is that we then see all that math coming together. We see what? The total years of their life described. And then finally, it ends with a clear notice of what? And they, they die. Interesting. When it's all said and done, there is no doubt that the greatest accomplishment of each one of these fathers that are mentioned here in Genesis chapter number five in the earliest stages of the history of mankind, their greatest accomplishment is, is this. And, and really, they had nothing to do with it. It was all God working in and through these men to use them in this way. There was something simple but yet prophetic and divinely influenced in these father's roles in carrying on the promise that God had given Adam and Eve that there would be a seed born to the woman that would provide a way that would crush the head of Satan. So these fathers simply existed. They lived their life. They gave uh, their, their seed on to uh, their son, and it, what did it do? It extended the promise from generation to generation of God's faithfulness. Because why? He always keeps his promises. Generation after generation, he preserved the seed and gave hope for mankind that there truly was a Messiah coming. With that said, no one listed here is able to see this blessing unfold in their time. And there's this reality check that although there's a promise and God is faithful to bring it about, that there are still living in the consequences of what? Sin. Because of their sin, there is also a promise of death. This apparent pattern reveals much about the effects of sin. They're real. They are universal, encompassing all mankind. Every man, woman, and child that is to be born into this world will be plagued with the reality of sin. Psalm 51.5, the psalmist says, Behold, I was shapen and in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There's a reality of, of death that's here in this genealogy, Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Romans 5.19, there's hope here in the midst of death, for as by the one man's disobedience, 
the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, many will be made righteous. The reality of sin. It's real. It's universal. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, the effect of sin is what? It's death. What we've earned for choosing sin is death. We see it in Genesis. We see it all throughout Scripture. And we see it in our day, a universal truth. None of us can sidestep the reality of death. But, Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? The effects of sin are real. They are universal. But friends, they are not final. There is hope. He is making a way here in Genesis 5. And that way has been paid for us today. And we know so well in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Friends, I cannot say that enough this morning. There is hope. There is hope. Although sin is real, although the consequences of our choices are real and they weigh heavy every single day, we can find hope and deliverance in Jesus Christ because He's given us the Counselor, the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Let's look on to our second point this morning, that there are a number of exceptions within this genealogy that we want to point out and make some observations of this morning. We observe our first exception in the explicit pattern in the description of Adam. So look at verse number three, chapter number five. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and after his image and named him Seth. This seems to potentially cast some question on whether the image and likeness of God continues on generation after generation. Back in chapter number one, we saw that Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of whom? God. But here we have now Adam bringing forth a son and it describes him in a unique way that his, he was fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So does the image and likeness of God continue in the subsequent generations or was the Imago Dei, the doctrine of the image of God, reserved only for Adam and Eve? believe based on the study that we can find on the image of God through the whole of Scripture, I think we're in good company as most theologians agree that since the source of Adam's image and likeness was of who? God. That as he were to bring forth a son, the image and likeness of God that was found in Adam would be that of his son as well. And so, the image of God would be passed on for future generations. We see this supported throughout the New Testament as well as the image of God carried 
on through the mankind. James 3.9 tells us, with it we bless, speaking of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 1 Corinthians 11.7 tells us, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So when we look at the exceptions and how the genealogy is described, certainly those unique phrases described to Adam and his son Seth jump out. The second notable exception to the pattern of this genealogy that we see is found in the person of Enoch. There's a lot of questions surrounding this man, but we do know some very specific things about him from Scripture. Hebrews 11.5 tells us, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was found and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having what? Pleased God. What a, what a beautiful testimony that Enoch has here in Scripture, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure he accomplished a lot of other things with his life, his time on earth. But what is he known for? What is he remembered by? Simply what? Pleasing the Lord. So much so that God seems to have honored his, his life and his faithfulness in pleasing him by what? Snatching him up. Not having to face death in his day. So we certainly see an exception. Obviously, this is obviously not normative, and there's something, though, special about Enoch's walk with the Lord, to be known as a man that simply pleased him. Our third exception is found in the person of Lamech. It's important to note that this Lamech here in chapter 5 is not the same Lamech that we saw in who? Or in what chapter? <clears throat> chapter number four that Brother Welch took us through. What is the chapter four Lamech known for? If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So that's, that's Cain's Lamech. Seth's Lamech stands in stark contrast to chapter number four. In chapter five, Lamech is known for his prayerful hope in the Lord. This is really found in the meaning of his name. All right, we get our English word what? To lament. Lamech is known to be laboring in lament or sorrow that he is burdened with what? The sinfulness of his day. So here we see in, in Lamech's description here, He's the only one in verse number 28 where we have a description of his son in more detail, diverting from the, the typical structure here. Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name, what, Noah. So Lamech is the father of Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech had great hope for the future through the promise that had been given. 
The final exception that we see in our text here this morning is found in the person of Noah. It is here that the standard pattern of the genealogy is completely abandoned. Right? We don't get much uh, from Noah here in regards to the years and how old he was and so forth. But we see just a simple description of what Noah's three sons. We see that in verse number 32. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This description is important as it will be linked to future chapters in Genesis. Chapter number 10, we will dive into much deeper detail of the genealogy of those three sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So keep note of that, that it's important that that's broke out that way for Noah. So sit another time out, catch our breath. There's a lot of detail. A lot of description, a lot of structure here in these genealogies. But again, I hope that you're seeing how the Lord is working through and preserving his line and his seed. So what's our takeaway up to this point? Our takeaway is that all of this detail in this structure, this ancestry that's laid out for us, is all tied again back to what Genesis chapter number three of a promise And as we tie it all together, we're now going to turn our gaze to hope. The hope that is within this genealogy. Friends, I want to make some observations as we drive home this chapter number five. Some takeaways that we should be mindful of. First one is this. God is sovereign and is over all. As we look at Genesis chapter number five, this should be a key takeaway to our understanding of his fulfillment of the promise that is to come, that God is sovereign and he is over all. All generations, all peoples, he is supremely 100% sovereign. God is holy and his character demands justice. God is holy and his character demands justice. If you remember, although we find hope in this passage, it is all seasoned with this reality that we're still living in the consequences of sin. So after each man is listed, we have this simple description, and he died. God is holy and his character demands justice. There are consequences for their sin, and he's fulfilling his word and his promise to Adam and Eve that because they've disobeyed the word of the Lord, they would surely die. But don't we also see here that God is long-suffering and slow to anger? As we see these generations progress year over year, decade after decade, century after century, don't we see the Reality and the consequences of sin, maybe in a more, more way as it will climax to Noah and a worldwide flood. He's patient, he's long-suffering, he's slow to anger. He's providing them a chance, an opportunity to recognize his goodness and to trust him. God is good in providing a way. He could have left them in the consequences of their sin, because they deserved it. 
He could have left them without hope, but he chose not to. He provided a way. Why? Because he is a good, good father. Do you believe that about God this morning? That he's good to you? As we talked about circumstances, as we looked at the beginning of the passage and reminding ourselves of who God is, circumstances, unconfessed sin, troubles in our life, trials, temptation, that can all cloud out the reality of who God is. But this morning, this genealogy stands here in clear testimony to say that God is good. Why? Because he made a way. Next, God is faithful. Not only is he sovereign, not only is he holy and long-suffering, slow to anger, not only is he good in providing a way, but he's faithful in preserving a seed. God always keeps his promises. No matter what you're going through, no matter what your own flesh, no matter what the world is telling you, no matter what the, the weakness of your heart is telling you, the deceitfulness of your own way is telling you, that he's faithful. He will hold us fast. Turn over with me to the Psalms. Psalm chapter, Psalm 124, excuse me. Psalm 124. This is, this is the testimony of the word. The psalmist says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel say. Can you give testimony to that? If it had not been but for the Lord, if not for His grace, if not for His long-suffering, if not for His goodness, let's read on. Let Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept over us. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Verse 6, blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Are you thankful for the way of escape this morning? He's faithful. Even when we are faithless, as Andy said, he is faithful. He has made a way and we have escaped. Verse number eight, get this. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. He is our creator. He has spoken all things into existence by the power of his word. And he is a good, good father. He's faithful. He's faithful this morning. Do you believe that? Is not God loving and giving us his son? Jesus then is able because of who he is and what he has done to make this way possible. It is complete. That is finished. Why? Because he has said so. It is finished. He has made propitiation. He has made atonement for our sin. And our relationship with God is now restored and made right 
because of God's faithfulness in giving us his son who lovingly pursued us as a shepherd running after that lost sheep. 1 Timothy 2.15, friends, there's hope in this reality from the word of God. For there is one God, one mediator, also between God and men, himself, man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 2.17 and 18, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, this truly is a message of hope, not just for these generations, but for all generations present and for the generations that will come that are right here in this room as God continues to pursue a remnant, drawing those to himself that they will call out on the name of the Lord and be saved. This is there in Genesis chapter number five. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have done this work that we could not do. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you ran after us you pursued us. You didn't give up on us. Father, as we look at this genealogy, I pray that our hearts would be glad. It would be hopeful. That the promise was fulfilled. The Old Testament, looking forward to the New Testament as Mary would give birth to Jesus, and he would live a perfect, sinless life. He would reveal himself to the world in signs and miracles and wonders. And although he would be tempted, he was faithful to be the God-man, to be sinless, and to be a, that perfect lamb, spotless, without any defect. He was able to shed his blood. Because of that, there's remission of sin. Father, I pray if there's somebody here, even this morning, that has never recognized that a promise has been fulfilled, that there is hope that we live in, and it's not something, it's nothing that the world could provide. It's not religion, it's not money, it's not riches. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you said, Father, in your word that we confess with our mouth, and we believe in our heart that God hath raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead. You've promised that we will be saved. So I pray if there's a young person, I pray that if there's an adult here uh, has been wrestling with the reality of death and and life, that even in the technical description of a genealogy and describing the lineage of Adam and Seth, that we could see Jesus and we could see a promise fulfilled and we could see hope in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Father, what a beautiful thing it would be today for it to be the day of someone's salvation. That the old would be cast away and behold, all things 
would become new. Father, we pray that there's somebody here this morning who's wrestling in that way that they would seek one of the elders out, seek out a, a mom and dad, seek out somebody else, a, another covenant member, and we could just study and discuss together about what your word has and what the spirit is doing to potentially draw them to you. Father, we thank you this morning. Do that work, we pray. Let you be glorified. Let your name be magnified only. In Jesus' name.